The False Burton Combs, first published in the December 1922 issue of Black Mask magazine. I had an outside stateroom on the upper deck of the Fall River boat, and ten minutes after I parked my bag there, I knew I was being watched. The boat had already cleared and was slowly making its way toward the battery. I didn't take the shadowing too seriously. There was nothing to be nervous about. My little trip was purely a pleasure one this time. But then, a dick getting your smoke is not pleasant under the best of circumstance. And yet I was sure I had come aboard unobserved. This chap was a new one on me, and I thought he must have just picked me up on suspicion, trailed along in the hope of getting something. But I checked up my past offenses, and there was really nothing they could hold me on. I ain't a crook, just a gentleman adventurer, and make my living working against the lawbreakers. Not that I was with the police, no, not me. I'm no knight errant, either. It just came to me that the simplest people in the world are crooks. They are so set on their own plans to fleece others that they never imagine that they are the simplest sort to do. Why, the best safe cracker in the country, the dread of the police of seven states will drop all his hard-earned money in three weeks on the racetrack, and many a well-thought-of stick-up man will turn out his wad in one evening's crap game. Get the game? I guess I'm just one of the few who see how soft the lay is. There's a lot of little stunts to tell about if I wanted to give away professional secrets, but the game's too good to spread broadcast. It's enough to say that I've been in card games with four sharpers and did the quartet. At that, I don't know a thing about cards and couldn't stack a deck if I was given half the night. But as I say, I'm an adventurer. Not the kind the name generally means those that sit around waiting for a sucker spend their time helping governments out of trouble. Not that I ain't willing to help governments at a certain price, but none have asked me. Those kinds of chaps are found between the pages of a book, I guess. I know. I tried the game just once and nearly starved to death. There ain't nothing in governments unless you're a politician, and as I said before, I ain't a crook. I've done a lot of business in blackmail cases. I find out a lad that's being blackmailed and I visit him. He pays me for my services, and like as not, we do the blackmailers every time. You see, I'm a kind of a fellow in the center, not a crook and not a policeman. Both of them look on me with suspicion, though the crooks don't often know I'm out after their hides, and the police, well, they run me pretty close at times, but I gotta take the chances. But it ain't a nice feeling to be trailed when you're out for pleasure, so I trot about the deck a few times whistling just to make sure there wasn't any mistake. And that bird come a-tramping after me as innocent as if it was his first job. Then I had dinner and he sits at the next table and eyes me with a wistful longing like he hadn't made a pinch in a long time and is just dying to lock somebody up. But I study him too and he strikes me as queer. He ain't got none of the earmarks of a dick. He acts like a lad with money and orders without even looking at the prices and it comes to me that I may have him wrong and that he may be one of the fellas that wanted to sell me oil stock. I always fall hard for the oil stock game. There ain't much in it, but it passes the time and lets you eat well without paying for it. About nine o'clock, I am leaning over the rail, just thinking and figuring how far the swim is to shore if a fella had to do it. Not that I had any thought of taking to the water, no, not me, but I always like to figure what the chances are. You never can tell. 
Well, that bird with the longing eyes cuddles right up and leans over the rail alongside of me. It's a nice night, he says. A first-rate night for a swim. I looked him over carefully out of the corner of my eyes. He sort of straightens up and looks out toward the flickering shore lights. It is a long swim, he says, just like he'd had the idea in mind. Then he asks me to have a cigar, and it's a quarter one, and I take it. I wonder would you do me a favor, he says after a bit. This was about what I expected. Con men are full of that kind of gush. Hmm, is all I get off. My game is a waiting one. I came aboard a bit late, he goes right on. I couldn't get a room. Now I wonder if you would let me take the upper berth in yours. I have been kind of watching you and saw that you were all alone. Kind of watching me was right. And now he wanted to share my room. Well, that don't exactly appeal to me, for I'm banking on a good night's sleep. Besides, I know that the story is fishy, for I bought my room aboard and got an outsider. But I don't tell him that right off. I think I'll work him out a bit first. I'm a friend of the purser, I tell him. I'll get you a room. And I make to pass him. No, don't do that. He takes me by the arm. It isn't that. Isn't what? I look him straight in the eyes, and there's a look there that I have seen before and comes in my line of business. As he half-turned and I caught the reflection of his eyes under the deck light, I read fear in his face, real fear, almost a terror. Then I give it to him straight. Out with what you want, I said. Maybe I can help you, but let me tell you first that there are plenty of rooms aboard the boat. Now, you don't look like a crook. You don't look sharp enough. What's the big idea of wanting to bunk with me? He thought a moment and then leaned far over the rail and started to talk, keeping his eyes on the water. I'm in some kind of trouble. I don't know if I've been followed aboard this boat or not. I don't think so, but I can't chance it. I haven't had any sleep in two nights, and while I don't expect to sleep tonight, I'm afraid I may drop off. I don't want to be alone, and you struck me as an easygoing fellow who might, might... Like to take a chance on getting bumped off? I cut in. He kind of drew away when I said this, but I let him see right away that perhaps he didn't have me wrong. And you would like me to sit up and protect you, eh? I didn't exactly mean that, but I don't want to be alone. Now, if you were a man I could offer money to... He paused and waited. I give him credit for putting the thing delicately and leaving the next move to me. I didn't want to scare him off by putting him wise that he had come within my line of business. It might look suspicious to him. And I didn't want him to get the impression that I was a novice. There might be some future money in a job like this, and it wouldn't do to be underrated. I'll tell you what I'll do, I says. I've been all over the world and done some odd jobs for different South American governments. That always has its appeal. And I'll sit up and keep an eye on you for a hundred bucks. Crude? Maybe. But then I know my game and you don't. Then I can sleep, he chirps, and his eyes sort of brighten up. Like a baby, I tells him. Good, he says, and come to my cabin. So I take the number of his cabin and tell him that I'll meet him there as soon as I get my bag. Then I leave him and fetch my bag and put what money I have in the purser's office, for although I can size up a game right away, a fella can't afford to take chances. I have run across queerer ducks than this in my time. Twenty minutes later, he's in bed and we've turned the sign about smoking to the wall and are puffing away on a couple of good cigars. All content, he's paid me the hundred like a man, two nice new fifties. 
He just lay there and smoked and didn't talk much and didn't seem as sleepy as I had thought he was. But I guess he was too tired to sleep, which is a queer thing, but I've had it lots of times myself. He seemed to be thinking, too, like he was planning something, and I was concerned in it. But I didn't bother him none. I saw what was on his chest, and he didn't seem in a condition to keep things to himself. I thought he'd out with some proposition for me, but I didn't know. I wasn't anxious to travel about and be a nurse to him. That's more of a job for a private detective, but they ain't used over much because they want to know all about your business and then you're worse off than you were before. At last he opens up. What's your business? he asks. And seeing I got his hundred, there ain't no reason to dodge the question. I up and tells him. I'm a soldier of fortune. He kind of blinks at this and then he asks. That means a chap who takes chances for, for a consideration? Certain kinds of chances. I qualify his statement. Like this, for instance? Sometimes, but I don't reckon to travel around as a bodyguard, if that's what you're thinking. He laughs like he was more at ease, but I often see them laugh when they are getting ready to send me into the danger that they fear. It's not downright meanness like I used to think when I was younger. It's relief, I guess. I think I can use you, he said slowly, and pay you well, and you won't need to see me again. Oh, I ain't got any particular dislike to you, I tell him. It's only that I like to work alone. Let me hear what you have to offer, and then, well, you can get some sleep tonight anyways. He thought a moment. How much do I have to tell you? As much or as little as you like, the less the better, but all I ought to know to make things go right for you. Well, then, there isn't much to tell. In the first place, I want you to impersonate me for the summer, or a greater part of it. That's not so easy, I shook my head. It's easy enough, he went on eagerly. I am supposed to go to my father's hotel on Nantucket Island. Then he leaned out of the bed and talked quickly. He spoke very low and very much in earnest. They could not possibly know me there. His father was abroad and he had not been to Nantucket since he was ten. How old are you? he asked me suddenly. Thirty, I told him. You don't look more than I do. We are much alike, about the same size, same features, and you won't meet anyone I know. If things should go wrong, I'll be in touch with you. And yet trouble, I questioned. What should I know about that? That my life is threatened. I have been mixed up with some people whom I am not proud of. And they threatened to kill you. I stroked my chin. Not that I minded taking the chances, but somewheres I had learned that a laborer is worthy of his hire. It looked to me like he was hiring me to get bumped off in his place, which was all right if I was paid enough. I had taken such chances before and nothing had come of it. That is nothing new to me. Yes, they threatened my life, but I think it's all bluff. I nodded. I could plainly see it was that, so I handed out a little talk. And that's why you paid me a hundred to sit with you all night. Mind you, I don't mind the risk, but I must be paid accordingly. When he saw that it was only a question of money, he opens up considerable. He didn't exactly give me the facts in the case, but he tells me enough, and I learned that he had never seen the parties. The end of it was that he draws up a paper which asks me to impersonate him and lets me out of all trouble. Of course, the paper wouldn't be much good in the bad jam, but it would help if his old man should return suddenly from Europe. But I don't aim to produce that paper. I play the game fair, and the figure he names was a good one. 
Not what I would have liked, perhaps, but all he could afford to pay without bringing his old man into the case, which could not be done. Somehow, when we finished talking, I got the idea that he had been mixed up in a shady deal, bootlegging or something, and a couple of friends had gone to jail on his evidence. There were three others from Canada who were coming on to get him, the three he had never seen. But it didn't matter much to me. I was just to show them that he wasn't afraid, and then when they called things off or got me, all was over. Personally, I did think that there was a lot of bluff in the whole business, but he didn't, and it wasn't my game to wise him up. It was a big hotel I was going to for this summer, and if things got melodramatic, why, I guess I could shoot as good as any bootlegger that ever robbed a church. They're hard guys, yes, but then I ain't exactly a cake-eater myself. An hour or more talk in which I learn all about his family in the hotel and Burton Combs drops off for his first real sleep in months. The next morning we part company in his stateroom and I taxied over to New Bedford. He thinks that's better than taking the train because there was a change of cars in the open country and he don't want me to drop too soon. There are only about ten staterooms on the little tub that makes the trip from New Bedford to Nantucket, and I have one of them which is already reserved in Burton Combs' name. After taking a walk about the ship, I figure out that there ain't no desperate Desmonds aboard, and having earned my hundred the night before, I just curl up in that little cabin and hit the hay. Five hours, and not a dream disturbed me. And when I come on deck, there's Nantucket right under our nose, and we are rounding the little lighthouse that stands on the point leading into the bay. There's a pile of people on the dock, and they sure did look innocent enough, and I take a stretch and feel mighty good. From some of the outfits I see, I know that I'm going to travel in class, and I hope that Burton Combs' clothes fit me, for I didn't come away prepared for any social gaiety. But it's early in the season yet, and I'll get a chance to look around before the big rush begins. There is a bus at the dock which is labeled Sea Breeze Inn and that's my meat. I climb in with about five others and we are off. Up one shady street and down another, up a bit of a hill and a short straightaway and we are at the hotel. It's a peach too with a view of the ocean that would knock your eye out. The manager spots me at once and says that he'd know me among a thousand as a Combs, which was real sweet of him, seeing that he was expecting me, and the others in the bus were an old man, three old women, and a young girl about nineteen, but it wasn't my part to enlighten them and tell them that I was onto his flattery. Besides, he was an old bird and probably believed what he said. He was right glad to see me and tried to look like he meant it and wondered why I hadn't come up there again in all these years, but guessed it was because it was kind of slow, with my father having a hotel at Atlantic City and at Ostent, and he wanted to know if I was going to study the business. Said my father wrote him that he would like to see me interested in the hotel line. I didn't say much. There wasn't no need. Mr. Rowlands, the manager, was one of those fussy old parties, and he talked all the way up in the elevator and right into the room. There were about 50 people there, all told, on the 1st of July, but they kept coming in all the time, and after I was there about two weeks, the place was fairly well crowded. But I didn't make any effort to learn the business, thinking it might hurt young Combs, who didn't strike me as a chap who would like any kind of work. There was one young girl there, the one that came up in the bus with me, Marion St. James, and we had quite some times together. She was young and full of life and wanted to be up and doing all the time, and we did a great deal of golf together. Then there was another who took an interest in me. She was a widow and a fine looker, and it was her first season there. 
I thought that she was more used to playing Atlantic City, for she didn't look like the usual run of staunch New England dames, sort of out of place, and she looked to me to trot her around. But I didn't have the time. There was Marion to be taken about. She was what you'd call a flapper, and talked of the moonlight and such rot. But she was real and had a big heart, and after all a sensible little head on her shoulders. And she couldn't see the widow a mile, and looked upon me as her own special property, and blew the widow up every chance she got. But the widow, I guess, was bent on making a match, and she was finding the island pretty dead, though the son of John B. Combs, the hotel magnate, looked like a big catch. So you see, my time was pretty well taken up, and I grabbed many a good laugh. I never took women seriously. My game and women don't go well together. Yet that widow was persistent and curious and wanted to know every place Marion and me went and used to keep asking me where we drove to nights. For the kid and me did a pile of motoring. Yes, I had a car. A nice little touring car came with the Burton Combs moniker. Marion was different. She was just a slip of a kid stuck up in a place like that and it was up to me to show her a good time. I kind of felt sorry for her, and then she was pretty, and the fellow felt proud to be seen with her. All the time I kept an eye peeled for the bad men. I wondered if they'd come at all, and if they did, I thought that they would come in the busy season when they wouldn't be noticed much. But that they'd come at all, I very much doubted. And then they came, the three of them. I knew them the very second they entered the door. They were dolled right up to the height of fashion, just what the others were wearing. But I knew them. They just didn't belong. Maybe the others didn't spot them as outsiders, but I did. They were no bluff, either. I have met all kinds of men in my day, bad and worse, and these three were the real thing. It came to me that if these gents were bent on murder, I had better be up and doing. And that island boasted that it had never had a real murder. Yes, it sure did look like all records were going to be broken. One of them was a tall, skinny fellow, and he looked more like a real summer visitor than the others. But his mouth gave him away. When he thought he was alone with the others, he'd talk through the side of it, a trick which is only found in the underworld or on the track. One of the others was fat and looked like an ex-bartender, and the third, I should say, was just a common jailbird that could cut a man's throat with a smile. The skinny tall one was the leader, and he was booked as Mr. James Farrow. He made friends with me right off the bat. Didn't overdo it, you know, just gave me the usual amount of attention that most of the guests showed toward the owner's son. He must have read a book about the islands, for he tried to tell me different things about the different points of interest like he'd been there before. But he had a bad memory like on dates and things. Marion gave me the dope on that. She knew that island like a book. I didn't have much doubt as to who they were, but I checked them up, liking to make sure. I didn't know just what their game was, and I didn't see the big idea of wanting to bump me off. If they wanted money, I could catch their point, but they seemed pretty well supplied with the ready. Yes, sir, I looked this pharaoh over, and he's a tough bird, and no mistake. But then I've seen them just as tough before, and pulled through it. Besides, I hold a few tricks myself. They don't know I'm on, and they don't know that I'm mighty quick with the artillery myself. And that gun is always with me. It ain't like I only carry it when I think there's trouble coming. I always have it. You see, a chap in my line of work makes a lot of bad friends, and he can't tell when one of them is going to bob up and demand an explanation. But they all find out I ain't a bird to fool with, and I am just as likely to start the fireworks as they are. Nearly every night after dinner, I'd take the car and Marion and me would go for a little spin about the island. 
I don't know when I ever enjoyed anything so much, and sometimes I'd forget the game I was playing and think that things were different. I've met a pile of women in my time, but none like Marion, nor near like her. Not since the days when I went to school, and that's a memory only. Well, we'd just drive about and talk, and she'd ask me about the different places I had been to, and I could hold my own there, for I've been all over the world. Then, one night, about ten days after the troop arrived, I got a real scare. We'd been over Sconset Way and are driving along home along 9.30 when zip, there's a whiz in the air and a hole in the windshield. Then there's another zip and I see Marion jump. It's nothing new to me. I knew that sound right away. It's a noiseless gun and someone has taken a couple of plugs at us from the distance. Well, it ain't my cue to stop, so I speed up and it's pretty near town before I slow down beneath the lamp and turn to Marion. There's a little trickle of blood running down her cheek, and she's pretty white, but she ain't hurt any. It's just a scratch, and I stop in the drugstore and get some stuff and bathe it off. She is a mighty game little kid and don't shake a bit and act nervous, but I'm unsteady for the first time in my life, and my hands shook. I wouldn't have been much good on a quick draw then, but later I would, for I was mad, bad mad, if you know what that is. I see that all the danger ain't mine. Not that I think they meant to get Marion, but I had brought that kid into something, and all because she kind of liked me a bit, and I took her around. On the way back to the hotel, I buck up and tell her that it must have been some of the natives hunting hares, and not to say anything about it, but that I would speak to the authorities in the morning. She just looked at me funny, and I knew that she did not believe me, but she let it go at that. If that's all you want to tell me, Bert, why, all right, I shan't say a word to anyone. You can trust me. That was all. Neither of us spoke again until we reached the hotel and I had parked the car under the shed by the side and we were standing at the bottom of the steps by the little side entrance. Then she turned and put her two tiny hands on my shoulders and the paleness had gone from her face but just across the cheek where the bullet had passed was the smallest streak of vivid red. You can trust me, Bert, she said again, and there seemed to be a question in her voice. Of course I trust you, Marion, I answered, and my voice was husky and seemed to come from a distance. It all happened very suddenly after that. Her head was very close, I know, for her soft hair brushed my cheek. I think that she leaned forward, but I know that she looked up into my eyes and that the next moment I had leaned down and kissed and held her so a moment. So we stood, and she did not draw back, and I made no movement to release her. We were alone there, very much alone. Then there was the sudden chug of a motor, a second's flash of light, and I had opened my arms and Marion was gone and I stood there in the blackness. So the spell of Marion's presence was broken and I stood silently in the shadow as Pharaoh and his two companions passed and entered the hotel lobby. Had they seen us? Yes, I knew they had, for they smiled as they passed, smiled and never knew that they had passed close to death for at that moment it was only the press of a trigger that lay between them and eternity. The curtains had been rung up on the first act, and the show was on. Before I could sleep easy at night, for the danger was mine and I had little thought of it, but now I felt that it was another's, and, well, I resolved to bring things to a head that night. Ten minutes later I went to my room, but not to bed. I put my light out and sat in the room until about twelve o'clock. At that time the hotel was as quiet as death, then I stepped out of my window and climbed down the fire escape which led to the little terrace which overlooked the ocean. I knew just where Pharaoh's room was, and I walked along the terrace until I was under it, and then swung myself up the fire escape and climbed to the third story. 
His window was open, and 30 seconds later I had dropped into the room and was seated on the end of Pharaoh's bed. Then I switched on the light and waited until he woke up. Guess he didn't have much fear of me, for he slept right on for another five minutes, and then he kind of turned over and blinked and opened his eyes. He was awake fast enough then, for he was looking in the mean end of my automatic. He was quick-witted, too, for he rubbed his eyes with one hand while he let the other slip under his pillow. Then I laughed, and he drew it out empty and sat bolt upright in bed and faced the gun. Pharaoh, I says, you were mighty near the going out tonight. And if I already hadn't lifted that gun of yours, I'd have popped you then. And I half wished I had let his gun stay there, for then it would have been an excuse to let him have it. A poor excuse, but still an excuse. It's hard to shoot a man when he ain't armed and prepared, but it's another thing to shoot when he's reaching for a gun and it's your life or his. Then you can let him have it in your mind easy. He was a game bird, was Pharaoh, for he must have had plenty to think about at that moment. You see, he couldn't tell just what was coming to him, and from his point of view, it must have looked mighty bad. But he started right in to talk, told me the chances I was taking and that I couldn't possibly get away with it. He didn't waste any time in bluffing and pretending surprise at seeing me sitting there with the gun. I give him credit, now, for understanding the situation. But I stopped his wind. Shut up, I says. And he caught the anger in my eye and in my voice, and he shut, which was good for him. For a chap can't tell for sure what he's going to do when he's seeing red and has the drop on a lad that he figures needs killing. Then I did a bit of talking. I told him what had taken place that night, and that I knew it was his doing, and he nodded and never tried to deny it. You killed my brother, he says, for he died trying to break jail a few months ago, the jail where you sent him. So I killed your brother, eh? Well, every man is entitled to his own opinion. Now, I don't know about the killing of your brother, but I'll tell you this, my friend. I came mighty near to killing you, and I won't miss either. And I don't crack windshields, and I don't go for to hit innocent parties. I could see that he was kind of surprised at the way I talked, for I wasn't specially careful about my language like I had been about the hotel and like he would have expected from the real Burton Combs. But I could see that he kind of smacked his lips at the mention of the girl, and he knew that he had a hold on me there. But I didn't care what was on his chest. I knew that morning would see the end of the thing one way or the other. I am going to give you until the 6.30 boat tomorrow morning to leave the island, I told him. And I was not bluffing either. After a man has had his warning, it's good ethics to shoot him down. At least I see it that way. That is, if he needs it bad, and you happen to have my code of morals. Also, if you want to live to a ripe old age. What then? He sort of sneers. Seeing as how he wasn't going over the hurdles right away, he thinks I'm a bit soft. In the same position, his own doubt about shooting me would be the chance of a getaway. And the chances were not good on that island, unless he had made plans in advance. Perhaps he had. I didn't know then, for I hadn't seen any boat hanging about the harbor. What then? He snares again. Then, I says, very slowly and thinking of Marion, then I'll cop you off at breakfast tomorrow morning. Yes, as soon as that boat leaves the dock, I'll be gunning for you, Mr. James Farrow. And as sure as you're not a better shot than you were tonight out on the moors, you'll go join your brother. With that, I turned from the bed and, unlocking his door, walked out of his room. The temptation to shoot was just too great. But I didn't go to bed that night. I just put out my light and sat smoking in my room, smoking and thinking. So I spent a second night that summer awake. I knew that the three would meet and talk it over, and no doubt get. 
But I just sat there, half facing the door and half facing the window, with my gun on my knees, waiting. How nice it would be if they would only come by the window. It would be sweet then, and what a lot of credit I'd get as Burton Combs protecting his father's property. They meant real business, all right, for I see now that there was sentiment behind the whole thing. Sentiment and honor. That peculiar honor of the underworld, which goes and gets a squealer. Combs had evidently squealed, and Farrow's brother had paid the price. And Combs went free. Position and evidence and politics had done the trick, I guess. I heard the clock strike two and then two-thirty, and then there was a footstep in the hall, and I turned and faced the door, and then there come a light tap on the door. This sure was a surprise. I didn't turn on the electric light, but just went to the door and swung it open suddenly and stepped back, but no one came in. Then I heard a kind of gasp, a woman's voice. The first thing I thought was Marion, and then I see the widow in the dim hall light. Her hair was all down, and she had thrown a light robe about her, and she was excited, and her eyes were wide open, and she looked frightened. It's Marion, little Miss St. James, she sobbed, and she's in my room now, and it was terrible, and I think, I think she's fainted. Then she stopped and kind of choked a bit. Right away it came to me that this gang had done something to her, and I wished that I had settled the whole thing earlier in the evening when I had the chance to, but... Come, I said to the widow, and took her by the arm and led her down the hall to her room. The door was open, and gun in hand, I rushed in the room ahead of her. There on the bed, she gasped behind me. I turned to the bed, and it was empty, and then I knew. But it was too late, for I was trapped. There was the muzzle of a gun shoved into the middle of my back and a hard laugh. Then Pharaoh spoke. Throw that gun on the bed and throw it quick. And, and I threw it and threw it quick. I was done. I should have suspected the widow from the first day I laid eyes on her, for she didn't belong. Yes, she was this gang's come on. And me, who had never fallen for women, was now caught by women, a good one and a bad one. One whom I wanted to protect and one who knew it. Now you see how the game is played. Neither a good nor a bad woman can help you in my sort of life. And yet I would take any chance for that little Marion who used to stand out on the moor at the... But Thyra was talking. And now, Mr. Combs, we meet again. And you're the one to do the listening. We are going to take you for a little motor ride. That is, you are going out with me to meet my friends. We don't intend to kill you. That is, if you have proved yourself a man and come along quietly. There is some information I want from you. And thanks for the return of my gun. He finished as he picked the gun off the bed. Yes, it was his gun, and mine was still in my pocket, and I'd have shot him then, only I saw that the widow was covering me. Come, Thyro turned and, poking the gun closely to my ribs, induced me to leave the room with him. If you make a noise, you go, he told me, as we walked down the long, narrow hall to the servant's stairs. But I didn't intend to cry out. If he would just move that gun of his the least little bit, I could draw and shoot. I almost laughed. The thing was so easy. The L.C. is lying right off the point, he went on, as we approached the little shed where my car was kept. You remember the L.C. It used to be your boat. The government remembers it, too. But they don't know it now, nor would you. But enough of that. Climb into your car. We'll use that for our little jaunt. We had reached the little shed now, and I climbed into the car, always waiting for a chance to use my gun, but he watched me like a hawk. Then he laughed, a queer, weird laugh, which had the ring of death in it. 
I drove as he said, and we turned from the hotel and out across the moors, that long stretch of desolate road that leads across the island, and then he made me stop the car and stand up. I'll take your gun, he said, and he lifted it from my hip. We won't need more than one gun between us tonight, for if it comes to shooting, I'll take care of that end of it. He threw the gun into the back of the car, where I heard it strike the cushion of the rear seat and bounce to the floor. We drove on in silence. He never said a word, but I felt as clearly as if he had told me that he was driving me to my death. The gun he had let me carry until we were safe away. Perhaps he had thought that without it I might have cried out in the hotel, but this I shall never know. That he knew all along that I had it, I have no doubt. More than once I was on the edge of telling him that I was not the man he thought I was, for it looked as though the game was up. But he would not have believed me, and besides my little agreement with Combs was back in my hotel room. Not a soul did we pass as we sped over the deserted road. No light but the dulled rays of the moon broke the darkness all around us. Half hour or more, and suddenly I see a car in the road as the moon pops out from behind the clouds. Then Pharaoh spoke, and there was the snarl of an animal in his voice. Here's where you stop, he growled, and here's where you get yours. They'll find you out here in the morning, and they can think what they want. We'll be gone, and the killing of a rat like you is the only business I've got on the moors this night. I had pulled up short in the center of the road now, for a big touring car which I recognized as Pharaoh's was stretched across our path, blocking the passage. In it, I clearly saw his two friends. It was death now, sure, but I made my mind to go out as gracefully as possible. And when he ordered me to open the door, I leaned over and placed my hand upon the seat. And it fell on the cool muzzle of a revolver. Yes, my fingers closed over a gun, and I knew that the gun was mine. Thrills in life. Yes, there are many, but I guess that moment was my biggest. I didn't stop to think how that gun got there. I didn't care. I just tightened on it and felt the blood of life pass quickly through my body, if you know what I mean. I couldn't turn and shoot him, for he had his pistol pressed close against my side. What he feared, I didn't know, but I guess he was just one of those over-careful fellows who didn't like to take chances. Open that door and get out, he ordered again as he gave me a dig in the ribs. I leaned over again and placed my hand upon the handle of the door, and then I got a happy thought. I can't open it, I said, and I let my voice tremble and my hand shake. But in my left hand, I now held my gun and thanked my lucky stars that I was left-handed, for I knew that if I had one chance I hoped for, it would have to be a perfect shot. White-livered after all, he muttered, and stooped over and placed his left hand upon the handle of the door. His right hand still held the gun close to my side, and his eyes were watching my every movement. I'd never seen a man so careful before. I couldn't pull the gun up and shoot, for he would get me at the very first movement, though I was tempted. I waited. The other two sat in the car ahead and were smoking and laughing. Of course, I knew that if I once stepped out in the moonlight with the gun in my hand, then it was all up. But I waited and then... The door really stuck a bit, for the nights are mighty damp on that island, and it was just that dampness which saved my life. For just the fraction of a second he took his eyes off me, just to glance down at the door with a curse on his lips. And with that curse on his lips, he died. For as he turned the handle, I gave it to him right through the heart. I don't miss at that range. No, not me. The door opened and he tumbled out on the road dead. I don't offer no apologies, for it was his life and mine, and as I said, he tumbled out on the road, dead. 
Another fellow writing might say that things weren't clear after that, but they were clear enough to me because I never lose my head. That's why I have lived to be 30 and expect to die in bed. Yes, things are always clear when clearness means a little matter of life or death. Those other chaps were so surprised at the turn things had taken that I had jumped to the road and winged one of them before they knew what had happened. But the other fellow was quick and started shooting and I felt a sharp pain in my right shoulder. But one shot was all that he fired and then I had him. One good shot was all I needed and he went out. I don't go for the miss. I didn't take the time to examine them to see if they were dead. I'm not an undertaker and it wasn't my business. I guess they were, but if they wasn't, I didn't intend to finish the job. I'm not a murderer either. Then there were a couple of houses not so far off, and I could see lights, lights that weren't there before, in both of them. Even on a quiet island like this, you can't start a gun party without disturbing some of the people. I just turned my car around and started back to the hotel. Twenty minutes later, I had parked it in the shed and gone back to my room. As far as I knew, no one could know what had taken place on the lonely moor that night. I played doctor to my shoulder. It wasn't so very bad either, though it pained a lot, but the bullet had gone through flesh and passed out. I guessed a little home treatment was as good as any doctor could do. Then the morning came, and my arm was not so good, but I dressed and went down to breakfast and saw the manager, and he told me the widow had gone on the early boat. I don't think that she was a real widow, but that she was the wife of one of those chaps. Pharaoh, I guess. But that didn't bother me none. She was a widow now, all right. And then about nine o'clock, news of the three dead men being found off on the road came in. And I know I got all three of them. There was a lot of talk, and newspaper men from the city came over, and detectives and one thing and another. The morning papers of the following day had it all in and wild guesses as to how it had happened. The three were recognized by the police as notorious characters, and then it got about that a rum runner had been seen off the east shore that very morning. The general opinion seemed to be that there had been a fight among the pirates and that these three men got theirs, which suited me to a T. I would have beat it, only that would have looked mighty queer, and honestly I didn't see where they had a thing on me. I thought the best thing to do was sit tight, and for nearly a week I sat. And then the unexpected unexpected by me at least, happened. The widow sent a telegram to the Boston police and they came down and nailed me. You see the writing on the wall? Keep clear of the women. A dick from Boston dropped in one morning and I knew him the minute he stepped foot in the hotel. I also knew he was after me, though at the time I didn't wise up as to how he was on. But he wasn't sure of himself and had the manager introduce him to me. Then he talked about everything but the killing, and of course he was the only one at the hotel that left that topic out of his conversation, and that was his idea of hiding his identity. But he was sharp enough at that, and he hadn't gone about the island more than a couple of days before he stuck this and that together and had enough on me to make the charge. But he was a decent sort of chap and came up to my room late at night with the manager and put the whole thing straight up to me told me about the widow's telegram and that I was under arrest and that I had better get a hold of the best lawyer that money could buy, for I was in for a tough time. He was right, and I knew that I was in a mighty bad hole. But I also knew there would be plenty of money behind me when the whole thing came out, and money is a mighty good thing to get out of a hole with. So I played the game and never let on that I wasn't the real Burton Combs. They locked me up and notified my adopted father, and the next morning the news was shouted all over the world, for John B. Combs cut a big figure, and his son's arrest made some music. 
And then the Combs lawyer, Harvey Benton, came out to see me, and the minute he set eyes on me, the cat was out of the bag, and I up and tells him the whole story, though I didn't give him the reason for Combs being frightened, but just said he was threatened by these three rum runners. I felt that playing the game fair would give me a better standing with the Combses and help loosen up the old purse strings. Young Combs wasn't such a bad fellow either, for the next day he was down to see me and ready to tell the whole story and stand up for me. Then we moved over to the mainland, and I couldn't get out on bail, and the prosecuting attorney started to have my record looked up, and I can tell you that after that, things didn't look so rosy. It all goes to prove that a clean sheet helps a man, though mine wasn't nothing to be ashamed of, but I will admit that it looked pretty slick on the front pages of the newspapers. Then John B. Combs arrives himself and comes up to see me. He listens to my story at first with a hard, cold face, but when I come to the part where I have to shoot quick or die, his eyes kind of fill and I see he's thinking of his son and the chances he would have had in the same place and how if I hadn't got him, they would have got Bert. Then he stretches forth his hand and grasps mine and I see that it would have been better if Burton had taken his father into his confidence in the first place. Yes, the old boy was a good scout, and he told me that he loved his son and that I had saved his son's life, and he didn't care what my past had been. He would see me through this thing that his son had gotten me into if it cost a fortune. It was a funny thing all around. Here was me, the sufferer, comforting the old boy and telling him that it was nothing, just like the chair looking me in the face was an everyday affair. But I didn't much like the idea of him being so sad, for it gives me the impression that my chances are not so good, and that I am going to pay the price for his son, which ain't nothing to sing about. But it was my word against the word of the gang, and they being dead wouldn't have much to say. Yes, I was indicted all right, and held for the grand jury. First-degree murder was the charge. Then come a wait with my lawyers trying to get a hold of some farmer who might have seen something of the shooting and would corroborate my story. Then comes the trial, and you would have thought the district attorney had a personal grudge against me all his life, and that all the politicians in one-horse newspapers were after his job. He paints up those three crooks like they were innocent young country girls that had been trapped by a couple of designing men. And he tells how Burton Combs done them in in a shady deal, and when he feared they were going to tell the authorities, he up and hires a professional murderer to kill them. I tell you, it made a mighty good story when he told it well. One could almost see those three cherubs going forth in childlike innocence to be slaughtered by the butcher, which is me. And he punched holes in my story, especially the part about how I put my hand down and found a gun on the seat. And he said that I took them out on some pretense and shot them down in cold blood, quick shooting being my business and shady deals my living. When he got through with my story, it was as full of holes as a sieve, and I had a funny feeling around the chest because I thought anybody could see what a rotten gang this was and what a clean-living young fellow I was, for my lawyer had painted me up as a young gentleman that went around the world trying to help others. Just when I think that things are all up and the jewelry are eyeing me with hard, stern faces, comes the surprise. You see, I had never told a soul about Marion being in the car with me when that gang first started the gunplay out on the Sconset Road. You see, I didn't see the need of it, and, well, somehow I just couldn't drag her into it. Weakness, I'll admit, for a fellow facing death should fight with every weapon he can grab. And there's that thing about women cropping up again. But somehow there in that stuffy courtroom, her innocent face and those soft, childlike eyes come up before me, and I see that she might have helped me a lot with the simple truth about the bullet that crossed her cheek. And while I was thinking about Marion and telling myself that my goose was cooked comes that big surprise. 
My lawyer calls a witness, and it's Marion St. James. Gad, my heart just stops beating for a moment. She was very quiet and very calm, but her voice was low, and the jury had to lean forward to catch what she said. And she told about the ride that night and how the bullet broke the windshield and scratched her cheek. And then came the shock. I was just dreaming there and thinking of the trouble I had caused her when I heard what she was saying, and I woke up quick. After I left, Mr. Combs, I called him Burden, and she pointed down at me. I went upstairs, but I couldn't sleep. I was thinking about what had happened out on the moor that night. Of course, I didn't believe what Burton had told me about the hairs, and then I remembered the look on his face as he bathed off my cheek, and it was terrible to see, and... Then she paused a moment and wiped her eyes and went on. After a bit, I looked out the window, and I could see the little shed where Bert kept his car, and I just caught the glimpse of a man going into it. I thought it was Bert and that he was going to drive out on the moor, and, oh, I don't know what I thought, but I was just frightened and I didn't want him to go, and I just rushed out of my room and down the back stairs and out toward the shed. I was just in time to see a big touring car pull out, and there were two men in it. And then I waited a moment and went and looked into the shed, and Bert's car was still there. I don't know why, but I was frightened. And I climbed into the little touring car and sat down in the back and kind of rested. Then I heard someone coming, and I hid down in the back of the car and pulled some rugs up over me and waited. And why did you wait? My lawyer asked her kindly. I just thought that I would be able to help Mr. Bert, and I wanted to help him. Was there any other reason? Yes, I thought that he was going into trouble for me and... and... Yes, the lawyer encouraged, and I wanted to help him. She said the words so low that you could hardly catch them but the lawyer didn't ask it to repeat them. I guess he thought it went over better that way, and it sure did, at least with me, for I knew what she meant. Then she went on. Pretty soon, Mr. Combs came along, for she kept calling me Burton Combs, and that big man was with him, the one they called Mr. Farrow. I looked carefully up over the door, for it was very dark where I was, and I saw that Mr. Farrow had a gun in his hand and that he held it close against Mr. Combs' back. And he talked rough, but too low to understand, and then they both climbed into the front of the machine. I did not know just what I could do, but I thought, oh, I don't know what I thought, but I did so want to help him, and I was just too scared to cry out. And then they started out, and after they were a little way out in the country, Mr. Farrow made Burton stop the car and stand up while he searched him. And he found his revolver and took it from him and threw it into the back of the car. It landed on the seat and bounced off, and I stretched out my hand and took hold of it and held it there under the rugs. I didn't know what to do with it at first, for I had never fired a gun. Then I heard Mr. Farrow say that he was going to kill Mr. Combs, and I was terribly frightened, but I leaned up and stretched my hand over the seat and tried to give the pistol to Mr. Combs. But Mr. Farrow turned suddenly, and I became frightened and dropped the pistol. Then I dropped back in the car again, but I was half out of the covers and afraid to pull them over me, for the car was stopped again, and I had a feeling that someone was looking down on me. And then I heard them moving in front of the car, and I looked, and I saw that Mr. Farrow had his gun pressed close against Mr. Combs' side, and that Mr. Combs was trying to open the door. Then came the sudden report, and I think that I cried out, for I thought that Bert was shot— And then came several more shots, one right after another, and I looked out and saw Mr. Combs standing in the moonlight, and a man beside another car firing at him, and then the man fell, and... She broke off suddenly and started to cry. And after that... My lawyer smiled at her. 
I climbed back under the robes, and Mr. Combs drove me back to the hotel, but he never knew I was there. Well, that just about settled it, I guess. The room was in more or less of an uproar, and you ought to have heard my lawyer. Now I know why good lawyers get so much money. He started in and he sure did paint that gang up mighty black, and now I was the innocent boy led into danger by these hardened criminals, and he showed how the gun was held close to my side when I fired. And if that isn't self-defense and good American pluck, I'd like to ask you what in heaven's name is. And that's the whole show. One hour later, I was a free man. Everybody was shaking hands with me, and from a desperate criminal, I had suddenly become a hero. And I guessed that Marion had done it. Then old Combs came up and shook me by the hand and told me how glad he was that I was free and what a plucky little thing Marion was and how I owed my life twice over to her. Then he offered me a job. Imagine, another job for the Combs family. But this was different. There is too much good in you to lead the life you have been leading. You may think that it is all right, but there will be others that won't. I can offer you something that will be mighty good. But I shook my head. I guess I'll stick to my trade, I said. I've had good offers before, and in my line, this little notoriety won't hurt none. It's a good position, he says, not paying much attention to what I was getting off. The right people will be glad to know you, and there will be enough money in it to get married. I started to shake my head again when he handed me a note. Read this note and then let me know. Not another word until you have read it. He smiles. I took the little blue envelope and tore it open, and it was from Marion. I would like to see you again when you take that position of Mr. Combs. I guess I read that simple sentence over a couple of dozen times before I turned to Mr. Combs. I guess I'll take that job, if it pays enough to get married on, was all I said. There ain't no explanation unless... unless I wanted to see Marion again myself. That's all, unless to warn you that it would be kind of foolish to take too seriously anything I said about keeping clear of the women. <laughs>